Well, let's go back to Second Peter or forward to Second Peter. And we will pick up in verse 16 of chapter 1. While you're, while you're turning there, um, the sign-up sheet for the, for the men's ministry, the second part of our 33 series, is right out as soon as you walk out the doors on your right. And uh, as Keith said, it will be March 2nd at 8 a.m. Saturday uh, over in the MCTS uh, classroom. So I want to challenge you guys that if you can possibly make it to those six sessions, they won't be six consecutive weeks this time because we've got spring break that falls in there too. But if you can take part in those six sessions, I think you'll be greatly helped and blessed. And I know um, it will be a blessing to you as well as to others. And also if you have friends, coworkers, neighbors, family, um, guys that you would like to invite, please feel free to do that. I think it's going to be a really uh, informal but helpful time. So looking forward to diving back into that again. Let me lead us in prayer before we dive into Second Peter this morning. Father, we pause one more time before you after we just read your holy and inspired word. And as I attempt by your grace now to take this word and give it sense to open it up and unfold it and preach it. We do pray this morning that this just wouldn't be an exercise in Bible study, that this wouldn't be an exercise in exegesis and theological reflection. Father, above all, we pray that we would have a meeting with you this morning in your word together, that the sense and weight of the truth and presence of God that is in this letter and in this passage of scripture would weigh upon us and press in upon us and mold us and shape us and transform us on the spot. You can do that from one degree of glory to another. Help us this morning. Show us in this text, the glory of Jesus and convince us beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is who he says he is. And the gospel is true. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, Peter has been taking us so far on a little bit of a journey that he, can, that he started in his first letter, and it's been on a journey toward godliness. That's been the consistent theme of this letter up to this point. He states it right at the beginning that God has granted us his divine power and given us all things in life that pertain to life and godliness. And then he ends the letter in chapter 3, verse 18, by calling us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, to grow in godliness. So that is his burden in this letter. Up to this point, he's talked about the power for godliness in the first four verses of the letter. In chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, he called us to make every effort toward godliness by supplementing our faith with all sorts of godly virtue and Christ-likeness. And then in verse 8, he, rem- he begins from chapter, chapter 1, verse 8 through 11 to press on us the necessity of godliness. That godliness is necessary, that we not be spiritually blind, that we be increasing and effective and fruitful, that we make our calling and election sure, that we avoid falling away from God, and that we obtain a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. And then last week... Pastor Jonathan reminded us of the role of reminder. 
why Peter insists on taking the Christians that he's writing to back to these very elementary principles of the faith, the, the gospel, righteousness, godliness, pursuing godliness, pressing toward heaven, all these qualities. And this is his last will and testament. This is his farewell sermon to them. And it's full of reminder. These are the things that he wants to tell them about before he dies. So in verse 15, he says, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. These are the things that Peter is giving his life to. These are the things that he wants to die with these kinds of things ringing in the ears of the people to whom he's writing. Why? Why does he want them to be grounded in these fundamental realities of the gospel and godliness and its importance? Because Peter is aware that there is different teaching in the world, specifically false teaching that these hearers, and listeners and readers of his letter are going to encounter and perhaps already have. And these false teachers will try to minimize the importance of what Peter has been stressing. Evidently, they were already saying some of these things, that godliness is not necessarily as important as Peter has made it out to be, and that all this stuff that Peter is saying about the second coming of Jesus and will say in this letter is just really a scare tactic. In fact, in chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, Peter alludes to what some of these false teachers were saying. Chapter 3, verse 3, knowing that first of all, that scoffers, that's how he describes these teachers, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires, that is, behaving in ungodly ways. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, I got up this morning, had breakfast, lived the same way I did the day before, and I'm not reaping any consequences. And all that you're getting all bent out of shape about a coming judgment and Jesus coming back and rendering judgment upon those who've lived ungodly lives and bringing in the godly ones who have believed the gospel and demonstrated it. In, I mean, this... This is ridiculous. This is a fairy tale. This is a fable. This is a myth designed as a scare tactic to get people to behave morally. That's what it is. I mean, if there is no coming judgment after all, the false teachers are right. There's no need to get worked up about godliness. Because living a godly life is optional if one's eternal destiny is not involved, right? These false teachers were minimizing godliness because they themselves were not godly. We'll get to these verses in a couple of weeks, but chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. What's he saying there? He's saying people are going to come in and try to persuade you that godliness is nothing to get worked up about. It's nothing to pursue. It's certainly nothing to make every effort toward. And because of them, the way of truth, that is, 
the way that Peter has been stressing and preaching and teaching will be blasphemed. And so he's very, very aware of that. And so he is going to write verses 16 through 18 as a defense against this kind of thinking. The false teachers claimed that Jesus and the claim of a second coming in judgment was just a cleverly devised myth. And Peter is going to now say, there's no way that can be. There is no way that what they're saying about what I'm teaching about Jesus is a myth or a story or a fable or a fairy tale. And in fact, in verses 16 through 18, Peter gives three reasons why Jesus Christ and his second coming cannot be a fairy tale. Here's the first one. Jesus is not a fairy tale because of historical authentication. Now, what do I mean by that? Historical authentication. Well, it's in verse 16. Let's see it. Peter writes, for we did not, picking up on what he just said about the, his, his, his dying reminder to these people, his passion to teach them these kinds of things. For we did not follow, that is we apostles, did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. In other words, the false teachers, like I've said, claim that Peter was teaching a myth. But Peter emphasizes that this can't be. He didn't just make this stuff up. It was the result of witnessing something with his own eyes that happened on this planet. Notice how he contrasts myths with eyewitness. He says, we didn't just follow cleverly devised myths. We didn't make up this story because we saw him. Get the connection? We didn't just dream this idea up. We saw Jesus. He lived. He was here. And we were eyewitnesses of all that he taught And especially me, Peter, I was an eyewitness of who he really was. And so Jesus is not a fairy tale because of historical authentication. It's it's history. Historical fact is very important for Peter. I read a tweet several months ago from a uh, non-believer. I won't mention who it is, but... He was asked the question, what's your favorite book of the Bible? And he said, quick response, I prefer nonfiction. I mean, he was clearly persuaded that Christianity and the teaching about Jesus and his second coming and all of this business was a fit, was a myth. It was a fable. It was a story. But Peter says that can't be because it's historical. The Christian faith isn't an obscure belief system with Jesus as a mythological figure. Rather, Christianity is based entirely on real space-time history. In the words of Francis Schaeffer, 
its central figure is an actual man who, quote, hung on a cross in the sense that if you were there that day, you could have rubbed your finger on the cross and got a splinter on it. That's how historical our faith is. Therefore, when you consider the Christian faith, you have to examine its historical claims to truth. And Peter is rooting the validity of all that he has been teaching and saying in history. In history. I mean, think about just just the gospel accounts themselves. Just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those are historical records. That's historical narrative. Those aren't just stories. They include way too many details to just be stories. I mean, think about these details that are included. Mark 15, 21 says that the man who helped Jesus carry the cross was, quote, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, there's no reason for Mark to include that, those names unless the readers know and could have access to those people. So you want to know who carried the cross with Jesus and helped him on his way to Calvary? Go talk to the man who was the father of Alexander and Rufus and go talk to Alexander and Rufus and ask him who their father is. Mark is saying, Alexander and Rufus vouch for the truth of what I'm telling you. And if you want, you can go ask them. Paul does a similar thing. The Apostle Paul encourages his readers to check with living eyewitnesses if they want to establish the truth of what he's been saying about the events of Jesus' life. Would you hold your finger in Second Peter and turn to 1 Corinthians, back a couple letters, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now this If you're new to Christianity, this is the central message. This is what we as a church consider to be, as Paul says, of first importance. This is the big thing for us at Heritage Baptist Church, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's big for us because it's big for Paul. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. So he's reminding Christians of the gospel which you received and in which you stand. He's being very much like Peter here. He's going back to the most important things and he's driving those things home to people. Because the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And when we get sidetracked and don't keep the main thing the main thing, that's where we get in trouble. I preach to you which you received in which you stand and by which you're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. So he's calling them to believe the gospel, hold to the gospel, live in light of the gospel, just like Peter was doing. For I delivered to you, verse 3, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. And you could have gone up to Paul and Paul could have pointed you to many people you could have talked to to verify that information. 
This is historical reality. The gospel that we preach, the gospel that we believe, that Jesus died on the cross, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures is true because it's history. It's history. Otherwise, why would Paul add verses 5 through 8 after he just spoke the gospel 1 through 4? He speaks the gospel in 1 through 4, and then he says, now go check it out for yourself. I'm not making this stuff up. It's not a story. It's not a myth. It's not a fairy tale. Go talk to Cephas. Talk to the apostles. Talk to the 500 that he appeared to. If you don't know any of them, come talk to me. I'll tell you their names. You can't write that in a document designed for public reading unless there really were surviving witnesses whose testimony agreed and who could confirm what the author was saying. Otherwise, he's just a liar. And he takes great pains to buttress his claim about the gospel of Jesus Christ that he died, was buried, and was raised, and that what he's saying is true by appealing to eyewitnesses. And think about it. The gospels themselves, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the accounts of Jesus's life are way too detailed to be legend. I mean, just think about this. Mark four, we're told that Jesus was asleep on a cushion in the stern of a boat. If you weren't there, why would you say that? I mean, that detail, by the way, he's asleep in the boat. Secondly, he's asleep in the stern of the boat, and he's got a cushion under his head. Or John 21, we're told that Peter was, quote, a hundred yards out in the water when he saw Jesus on the beach. And when he jumped out of the boat, they together caught 153 fish. (laughs) 153, just in case you were wondering. In John 8, as Jesus listened to the men who caught a woman in adultery, we're told that he doodled with his finger in the dust. We're never told what he was writing or why he did it. None of these details are relevant to the plot or character development at all. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking. You may be thinking, wait, stories in our age and our time are filled with those kind of details all the time. I mean, all the time, we, we want those kind of details. We want to know those things. So the mere fact that there's details present doesn't mean that these things weren't stories. Well, let me read what Tim Keller says. He says, the only, quote, the only explanation for why an ancient writer, and that's different from a modern writer, an ancient writer would mention the cushion, the 153 fish, and the doodling in the dust is because the details had been retained in the eyewitness's memory. That is why it can't be a story or a fable. Ancient writers didn't write that way. And, the, and uh, if, I mean, you, you just read the gospel accounts. It is absolutely crystal clear that they're writing as historical narrative, as historical narrative. The details that are included, the stories that are shared are in many ways way too counterproductive to their cause <laughs> if they weren't true. So Peter argues Jesus is not a fairy tale because we were eyewitnesses 
of his majesty. We historically authenticated this message. Number two, Jesus is not a fairy tale because of supernatural affirmation. Supernatural affirmation. Verse 17, for when he, that is Jesus, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now Peter is, is talking about the thing to which he was an eyewitness. That is, he's saying we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of the, of the 12 apostles, the three who were closest to Jesus. Peter, the man writing this letter, said, I was one of those three on the mountain with him that saw him transfigured, that saw him metamorphosized, that saw him changed before me to reveal to me his true identity and to hear the very voice of God confirm that this is his son. So now Peter turns to the event that's recorded in Matthew 17 and Mark 9 and Luke 9, what we historically have called the transfiguration. And we've already read the event, so we won't turn back to it but let's just quickly review what we saw there. Now, Peter, James, and John had already lived three years of their lives face to face with the man, Jesus. And so did the other nine of Jesus's 12 disciples and many others spent considerable time around him as well. But Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of Jesus's followers were privileged to see him in a way that no other human being ever could during his earthly ministry. They saw the glorified Christ. You remember the context, perhaps, of Matthew 17's account of the transfiguration. It's near the end of Jesus' ministry. It's in the midst of a lot of hostility toward him. He's already told his disciples repeatedly that he's going to die. They're struggling with this because he claims to be the Messiah. But Peter confesses that He is the Christ, the son of the living God. In spite of all of his fear and his confusion, he believes that what Jesus said, he doesn't understand it, but he believes it. And then Jesus again speaks about his suffering and his death and his resurrection. And Peter rebukes him. And then Jesus rebukes Peter and says, you don't know what you're talking about. You still have a lot to learn. Be quiet. Satan is influencing you more than I am. And then he calls his disciples to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. I mean, heat is on for the disciples. The heat is on. They are struggling. They've been following this man for three years that he keeps saying he's going to die and rise again. They don't understand why he claims to be the Messiah. That's a political leader who's supposed to come and rescue the people of God from Rome. He's supposed to come in glory and power and honor. And here he is, this humble Galilean peasant who is doing miracles and teaching and people are being changed and healed and raised from the dead. They don't get it. It's not computing. It's not syncing up. And then he's calling them to go die too. So they're fearful. They're frustrated with Jesus and Jesus senses all that. And so he says, Peter, James, John, come here. And he takes them up on a mountain. They don't know what's going on. And all of a sudden, 
without warning, they get a glimpse of the glory of Christ. Jesus unveils himself. He undergoes a metamorphosis. His form is changed. Mark says his clothing began to shine and became as white as snow, whiter than any launderer could whiten a garment. And light was flowing out of him. The refulgent glory of God was streaming through his being. The transfiguration then depicts Jesus' divine identity unambiguously. He brings Peter up on the mountain and he shows him, I'm God. Don't be afraid. Don't be fearful. Don't be discouraged. I am the son of God. Behold my glory. And next, Moses and Elijah appear on the scene. This is incredible. (laughs) Moses and Elijah show up and talk with Jesus. Now that's very significant. Because the appearance of these two men is immensely symbolic. Moses was the mediator of the old covenant, the giver of the law. Elijah stood at the head of a long line of prophets. And in summarizing the testimony of the Old Testament, Scripture often speaks of it as the law and the prophets. And here you have the two human representatives of both of those ideas. Moses of the law, Elijah of the prophets. And thus we see here the merging of the law and the prophets with the Messiah whose coming they all foreshadowed. And it confirms Jesus' appointment as the special messenger of God, the fulfillment of of the Old Testament, the one to whom the law and the prophets pointed, as Jesus himself said in Luke 24, that they testify about me, all the Old Testament. And Jesus stands here and Peter, James, and John see Moses and Elijah there. And they say, should we get three tenths? This is glorious. I mean, that's what happens when the presence of God appears and Peter, and then a voice comes and says, listen, my son is not like these other two men. These other two men you revere and you honor for they are the, they are the representatives of the law and the prophets. But get this, this man is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. And at that moment, the supremacy of Christ, the glory of Christ overshadows Elijah and Moses. And that symbol of God's presence, that cloud that was on the mountain that overshadowed the scene and God's voice being heard, urging his disciples to listen to Jesus. It was clear. Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets, but their appearance with Christ confirms his fulfillment of all the revelation in the old Testament that now that revelation is here in the person of God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, what a scene, what a scene. Now the question remains is why does Peter refer to that account? Why does he 
think back to the transfiguration because the event announced the approval of God upon his son and revealed Jesus as truly divine. That's why he says in verse 17, and he pulls out this detail from the account. When he received honor, that is, when he heard those words of commendation from God the Father, that this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That's the honor he's referring to. When Jesus received that honor and glory, that is, when he saw the revelation of his deity, when he saw that he really was God in human form, in the flesh, God and man, the son of God. Then the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, a reference to God, the father. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He pulls that out. He says, my message about godliness and making every effort to pursue it and the promises of God's grace and the the provision of a savior and the rescuing from the wrath of God and our sins being forgiven and washed away through faith and giving a, being, being made righteous in Christ, that that whole message is not only rooted in history, it bears God's stamp of approval on it. It's got God's testimony. It's not some man standing up and saying, by the way, what I'm telling you is from God, you need to hear it. God told me that this is what the message of God is. I mean, I heard it directly from God. He said, no, I heard God put his stamp of approval on his messenger, on Jesus, the one to whom I am preaching to you. I was there. I heard it with my own ears and saw it with my own eyes. What Peter emphasizes here is the honor and glory that's been given to Jesus at the transfiguration by God, the father. And therefore Jesus is not some fairy tale because the events were rooted in history and confirmed supernaturally by a testimony of God, the father himself. So it, is historical authentication and supernatural affirmation. And our culture has a hard time putting those things together. I mean, it's either history or it's supernatural, right? I mean, supernatural stuff can't be history and history can't be supernatural. Well, no, that's not God's universe. That's not God's world. In fact, Peter appeals to both. He says, you don't got to pit those things against each other. You don't have to pit the supernatural against history. It's historical and it's supernatural. It's got historical evidence behind it and it's got supernatural affirmation behind it. So it's not a fairy tale. And number three, the final reason that Peter gives for why Jesus is not a fairy tale is because of, and I'm going to throw another big word at you, but I'll explain it. Jesus is not a fairy tale because of empirical observation, empirical observation. Verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, what do I mean by the word empirical? Empirical observation. Empirical is the op- opposite of theoretical. It's the opposite of ideas. Empirical means I saw it, I touched it, I heard it myself. Personal experience, primary source documentation here. This is primary source stuff. This is me seeing it, me hearing it, me feeling it. 
all that. That's empirical. And Peter is saying, Jesus is not a fairy tale. And what I'm preaching to you is not some cleverly devised myth because I heard it, smelled it, experienced it, touched it. I was there. And notice the effort that he puts forward to, to just every word in verse 18 just underscores this. I'm going to read it with emphasis. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. I mean, isn't that just strong? He's saying, look, I was there. I heard the voice, the voice that said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. I heard it. I heard it with these ears. Every word in verse 18 underscores the fact that this was not secondhand stuff. Peter says, let me try to describe what that voice sounded like. There's a world of difference between hearing about someone's experience and, ex and experiencing it for yourself. And then you say, and then someone might say, well, that's a great story and all, and, but he could be making that up. I mean, sure, he had some supernatural experience. People have weird stuff all the time, probably caused by indigestion. They have crazy dreams, and he probably had some crazy dream and thought he saw some vision of God, probably on some hallucinogenic substance. And just people get tripped out and they think weird things. And I mean, this is strange. I mean, he says he's been on a mountain, got a vision of God. We hear that stuff all the time. And we typically think they're lunatics. But I would just step back from this account then and say, okay, does Peter's life bear the mark of a man who's crazy? I mean, here's, here's a man who is full of failure and flaw. He's a man who sinned, who betrayed Jesus. This is not a man who's gullible. This is not a man who's naive. This is a man who has a loud personality and is, and is opinionated. That's clear from the Gospels. He, he's, not, he's not a follower. He's a leader. He's not just some sort of like, yeah, I just kind of go with the flow. You know, it's just, you know, don't question anything. You know, just he says it, so we, must, we, we better believe it. That settles it. You know, just whatever Jesus says, I'll just listen. He challenges Jesus. He gets in his face. He rebukes him. He, he's willing to take Jesus's rebuke. He's called, you know, Satan. I mean, that's a pretty big insult. He takes it. You know, he's not a gullible guy. Plus, after his failure and his sin with denying Christ before his crucifixion, Jesus comes to him and says, by the way, Peter, you're going to die and you're going to die for me. John 21. I'm telling you this because I'm going to tell you what kind of death you're going to do to glorify God. So Peter knows it's coming. I mean, the departure he's probably referring to is his pending martyrdom. He knows it's coming. And all the while he's sticking to his guns on this. 
Now, either that happened or he's willing to die for a dream. He's laying his life down, crucified upside down for a dream. Or he, what he is saying really happened. And so I just challenge anyone to think he's out of his mind to just say, look at what he did with his life. I mean, he went all the way to the grave with it. So let me apply this in conclusion here and try to bring some ideas from this text home to us and try to encourage us with what we see in these three verses. Let me say, first of all, to you as believers, as dear believers who, like me, waver in faith and struggle with belief, our faith is not in vain. The gospel we believe is not some story. It's not some fable. It's rooted in history. And the ultimate question comes is, are these men who were with Jesus and walk with Jesus, are they credible witnesses or not? Are we prepared to believe what they affirm or what others who didn't see him or walk with him have to say about him? I mean, I would argue if anyone in here is speculative or hearing my voice and is speculative about Christianity, I mean, you're unsure about all this. I would say that you have more faith to deny Jesus than to believe in Jesus. You have greater faith than any Christian. Way more. You are staking your whole eternal destiny on the opinions of people who never heard or walk with Jesus. Maybe you're staking your opinions on people in the media or people in your family or friends at work, what they say or articles they've given you or things you've read on the internet or books. Really? Really? That takes some great faith. And I don't say that in a condescending way. I say that because it takes more faith to believe someone who didn't walk or see Jesus, walk with Jesus or see Jesus, than to affirm what others who did said about him. How do you have such great faith? Whose testimony could possibly be more reliable or trustworthy to you? Unless you want to hear their testimony because it affirms what you already want to hear. And then it's not so much an intellectual issue as a moral issue, is it? So, brothers and sisters, our faith is not in vain. The gospel is not a story. It's not a fable. It's history. Number two, our pursuit of godliness and the efforts we make to grow in grace are not in vain either. The efforts count for eternity. We aren't playing games. If Jesus is as Peter saw him, then what Peter says later in this letter about a coming judgment is true. And it's a judgment that rests upon ungodliness. So if Jesus really is alive and he really does have God's stamp of approval and he really is coming back to judge and save, if that is the case, make every effort in reliance upon the gospel to pursue godliness. It's not in vain, no matter what that pursuit costs you. Also, 
a third application, our efforts in evangelism aren't in vain either. We have a thick, robust, historical, intellectually satisfying faith. It's not pie in the sky, hope so. It's not, oh, it feels good, gives me good feelings. I would never have become a Christian if it didn't satisfy me intellectually. Never. It's ridiculous. I'm not going to believe some silly story. But brothers and sisters, our faith is not some silly story. It's not intellectually untenable. Therefore, don't be intimidated by other worldviews. And don't be afraid to respectfully, and I underscore that because you got to be that too. Don't be a jerk for Jesus. Respectfully challenge the assumptions and faith positions that, un, that, that lie underneath other people's truth claims, which is what they are, their philosophy of life. Science can never remove facts and it can never alter the events that have taken place in history. So don't apologize for believing. You say, I don't have to apologize much. I'm in Owensboro, Kentucky. You may be tempted to apologize in 20 years. Or if you move somewhere else. And I'm saying, make the full miraculous claim too. <laughs> Talk about your faith is weird. man. It's weird. It's so weird. It's true. Don't be afraid that it's weird. Of course, we believe some weird stuff. We believe that text. We believe what happened there. But it's not because we believe it because we're stupid. We believe it because God in his grace has opened our eyes to see the same thing Peter saw. The glory of Christ. Not the same way, but we have experienced the self-authenticating glory of Jesus in the gospel. And that was the result of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. So I close now with a quote from one of my favorite preachers, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, how do you explain the apostles themselves? Is it likely that the men who wrote these gospels were liars and fabricators and frauds that they deliberately invented these scenes? Is it likely that Peter who denied his Lord just before the crucifixion because he was afraid of death should afterwards make claims and statements that constantly exposed him to death, including the statements he's making here? and to martyrdom, and indeed subsequently, which led to his martyrdom? We base our whole case upon this apostolic witness and testimony. That is how the Christian church came into being. That is how she conquered the ancient world. These men simply preached the facts. They simply preached the facts concerning him, and we are driven ultimately to one of these two positions. We either believe the apostles or we don't believe them. I either accept the exalted, miraculous, definite claim or else I reject it. Either I believe that these things are facts or else I dismiss them as fables. Which are they to you? Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your word, which as we'll hear about next week, is divinely inspired. That no prophecy of scripture was ever given that did not come as the Holy Spirit was working through and in men. And we thank you that the word that we've considered this morning is true. Thank you that the gospel that we believe is true. Thank you that the hope that we have is certain. Thank you because it's founded upon a supernatural testimony and a history that cannot be changed, though it might be ignored. In Jesus' name, amen.